This is About Town. I'm your host, Blakely Freed. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, and it is raining, it's pouring, drizzling on and off. So we're staying inside. And today we have Connie Cronley reading her January and February columns. I'll link these in the show notes and leave you all to Connie's vivid storytelling. I'm Connie Cronley, and the title of this column is I'm Over It Now, Almost. I had a bumpy start to the holidays. One minute I was fine, the next I was yelling, damn it to hell, to my dog Zeke. I regretted it instantly. Worse than regret, I was ashamed. I saw myself as one of those overwrought mothers in public screaming at a crying child. It's a scene that renders us all with pity for the mother, for the child, for the cause, for our own helplessness. So with pats and kisses, I apologized to Zeke the dog and said I wasn't yelling at him as much as the situation. Well, there's no excuse for my behavior, but there is something of an explanation. When I'm stressed or depressed, I try three remedies. I paint something, plant something, or cook something. Once I painted polka dots on my outdoor furniture. Polka dots are happy. But this time, the weather was cold and I was fretful. Well, who wasn't? Nasty politics, zingo economics, lurking COVID. There was nothing to paint. It was the wrong season to plant. So cooking was up. As a cook, I am inept but ever hopeful. I would feel better, I thought, if the kitchen was warm and smelled like comfort food. Meatloaf! I spent almost an hour chopping and mincing and stirring and mixing. The meatloaf was in the pan, waiting for the oven to warm and the glaze to be made. I left the room for one minute, and when I came back, Zeke the dog was standing with his front paws on the kitchen counter, polishing off the last bites of the raw meatloaf. I wish I'd had the self-control to laugh and correct him gently. I shrieked like a banshee. Zeke the dog threw me a sly sticks and stones look and with a smug expression of I'd do it again in a second, settled down for a nap. How did I arrive at a life governed by two big dogs? I've always been a cat person. I understand cats. They're quiet, aloof, independent. If cats had a phone, the message on the answering machine would be, what do you want? With the hashtag, how did you get this number? Dogs are so emotional. They split the air with maniacal barking, invading, hard walking on the sidewalk, or squirrel, squirrel, satanic squirrel in the backyard. Sometimes it's treat, 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 or I will starve to death this instant. My dog Bucky times his ear-splitting barks when I'm trying to focus on something, like changing toner in the printer. I don't want to be a shrew. I want to float through the house in a sulky caftan, a beatific smile on my face, listening to Debussy, something with vodka in a stemmed glass. I've tried that, but the dogs are so needy for attention, they pace themselves to my legs, step on the heels of my shoes, and stumbling and tripping generates more cursing. 
not that Isabel the cat is undemanding. She reigns quietly, prevailing with the persistence of a dripping faucet. Somehow the pets in my life have taken over. They set the schedule. They establish the timetable of eating, sleeping, working. I am their cartoon scullery maid, scuttling from pet to pet, just trying to keep them happy. And yet they are my day-to-day family, and they distract me from the hungry gray wolves circling the house, howling about politics, finances, and epidemics. Sometimes grizzly bears peer through the windows. Then I take a breath and remind myself to be grateful. I have a snug house, a hot bath, piles of books, books that are full of wisdom and comfort. French novelist Albert Camus wrote, in the middle of winter, I discovered that there was in me an invincible summer, and that makes me happy. So, no matter how hard the world pushes against us, we have something stronger within us, pushing right back. It's a new year, and I have many things to be happy about. No meatloaf, but other things. The title of this column is Read Out the Names. I'm thinking about changing my name. I've changed my last name twice with very interesting results. So what wonderful adventures would befall me if I changed my first name too? Now sadly, my favorite names are already chosen. The names I really like are the athletes Joe Montana, Lovey Smith, Catfish Hunter, the actresses Maud Gunn, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, Stella Adler, and Tuesday Weld. Musicians Blossom Deary and Thelonious Monk. Writers Jack Wonder and Houston Smith. And even fictional people Tiger Lily and Holly Golightly. And of course the tongue twisters Evil Knievel and Yakima Canut, a cowboy I once interviewed. These are all names of color, imagination, or heft. A new name with some mojo would propel me through the new year. Do you think someone named Maud Gunn would sink into a funk over politics? Can you imagine Blossom Deary dragging through a low-energy day? From folklore to religion, across cultures, there is authority in naming things. Stories from Rumpelstiltskin to The Hobbit, there's power in discovering a name. Once I was involved in a church squabble, two camps of us hissing and spitting at one another like cranky cats. A man in the opposing camp waved a paper at us and said, I have the names here of seven or eight people who can prove you wrong. And the man sitting next to me shouted, Who are they? Read out the names. Well, the man did not read out the names, and the shouting man and those of us with him lost the day. I forget what the issue was, but I remember so fondly the cry, Read out the names. I often want names read out, or printed, or listed. 
When a nonprofit organization closes, I want to know the names of the board members and management who failed their fiduciary duty. When legislation can't get passed to ban assault weapons, that's my personal soapbox, I don't want to hear bland terms like lobbyists or activists. I want names of those responsible. I like seeing the names of the politicians who accept funding from the National Rifle Association and how much money they take. I want to know what gun manufacturer the lobbies are supporting and who benefits financially from that manufacturer. Names can be bludgeons for shaming. In 1850, Hawthorne's novel The Scarlet Letter condemned adulteress Hester Prine to public shaming and shunning. A hundred years later, in 1954, U.S. Army Specialist Counsel Joseph Welch deflated Senator Joseph McCarthy's communist witch hunt with the death blow question, Have you no sense of decency, sir? But time has hardened us. Being called out in public doesn't carry the same punch it once did. Public shame now amounts to nothing more than a Bronx cheer. The more shocking the behavior, the bigger the headlines, but little shame. Shame is a complex emotion. On a pain scale, it's head and shoulders above guilt and embarrassment. We've abandoned ancient punishments for breach of societal morals. No more standing in stalks in the public square. No more badges of shame like the red or blue badges the poor had to wear in 17th century England. No, contemporary shaming has gone underground, spreading on social media. Women have always been easy targets for shame, usually for sexual conduct, but males can be stigmatized too. When I worked with a soup kitchen, I met many male teens and young adults living on the street after being put out of the family home because of their sexual orientation. Psychologists tell us that adolescents feel shame more acutely than adults do. Adolescence is such a tender age, trying to grow that protective shell of adulthood, hypersensitive about self-image and identity. How cruel of us to subject adolescents to public skirmishes about gender identity, library books, and school toilets. Shame on us. We should have our names read out. <laughs>